morning. Well, I'm excited to be back uh, for a third time with you. I, Although I'm not a member here at the church, I, I feel like I'm a member. And I think I'm going to try to get one of those t-shirts, uh, <laughs> even though I'm not going to be here in a few weeks. Uh, no, it's a, it's a real privilege to be back. I was talking to my sister this morning. I was at a, at a wedding this last weekend, and uh, one of the phrases that's popular in our family is, we like to say um, someone gets it. Somebody gets it or they don't get it. Um, sometimes it can be probably not the nicest thing to say about somebody, especially if they don't get it. But we use that phrase in the English language. We say someone gets it, whether it be you know in a class or a theological idea. My dad and I like to say someone gets it. Um, or social cues. That's a big one. It's, 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 a, it's a common phrase that we use. And I think when I look at this passage, Mark chapter 14, that we're going to be looking at this morning, Mark chapter 14, you can start turning there in your Bibles. The first thing that came to my mind as I studied this passage and, and what the point of this passage is and how it contributes to the, to the picture of, of the Lord Jesus in Mark is that this person, this woman that we're going to look at, she gets it. Not social cues, not uh, even theological issues, although it is connected to theology, but she gets it, and that it being life. She gets life. She understands the purpose of life. She understands the purpose of the book of Mark. She understands who Jesus is. She gets it in the midst of a ton of people that are, are continually missing the point. It's the woman who anoints Jesus for his burial, Mary. Before we get there, let's look at, at where this is in the book of Mark. I, I preached here a few weeks ago on Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, about um, Jairus' daughter and the hemorrhaging woman, that Jesus is able and willing to save all those who come to him with no exceptions, whether it's Jairus, the uh, cream of the crop of society, or the outcast, the hemorrhaging woman. But as I, I mentioned that sermon, the book of Mark is written for a specific purpose. Mark 1, 1 says it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the good news about Jesus. And this good news is not just news that we hear. It's news that we embrace. The entire book is written to convince you to do something. There's a herald that has, in a sense, come from the battle and seen the victory and is announcing to the city, the king has won. Good news. But the entire book is structured to make you to to confess, to make two great confessions. The whole book of Mark, and this is an easy way to remember, is structured around two great confessions. Mark 1 through 8, it's showing who Jesus is through all of his miracles and his power. He's proving that he's the Messiah. And he asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And Mark wants you to say with Peter, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. But not only that, by Mark 15, there's another confession. There's these two confessions, and it's the centurion. It's the chapter after our passage. When Jesus finally dies, and in the way that he dies, when the temple is torn from top to bottom, and he cries out and gives up his life for us, the centurion says, truly, this was the Son of God. 
So the entire book of Mark, it's structured on these two confessions to get you to believe Jesus is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment of God's plan of history of all the Old Testament promises. He's the prophet, the priest, the king, the anointed one. But he's the anointed one and the Messiah. And he accomplishes his rule and reign through his death on the cross for our sins. That ultimately, it's through his death on the cross that he is lifted up. And so this story fits into that passage by showing us a woman who truly understands that. She understands, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, there's Old Testament prophecies about him. But he's the Messiah who's going to be crucified. He's the Messiah who's going to rule and reign through his death on the cross, bringing reconciliation to his people. And immediately before this passage, um, Peter has made that great confession that Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus has started to teach in chapter 8 that he is the Messiah, but he must be delivered over, suffer many things at the hands of men, and be crucified and rise again on the third day. And the first time Jesus says it to Peter, do you remember what Peter said? Peter starts rebuking Jesus. No, that's not how that's going to work. And Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. And throughout the entire book, we see the disciples, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the people. None of them get it. None of them understand. And it finally brings us to our passage. Mark 14. I'm going to read, read verses 1 through 2 just to give us some context. But we're going to be specifically looking at verses 3 through 9 to see an example of faith and devotion to Jesus. Verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So up to this point, point in Mark, there is hatred from the rulers of Israel. But at this point, we see they actually start planning to kill Jesus. They're seeking him by stealth. They're plotting. There's some way we've got to get rid of Jesus. In Luke, we're told that they know they have to kill Jesus because otherwise they're going to lose their place and their nation. They've got to get rid of this Messiah who all of these people are following. But they know they have to do it by stealth because the people at this point are going to be in uproar if they just take him and execute him. And they want to do it before the Feast of Passover. That gives us a little bit of context, and we'll talk about that at the end. But look with me at verses 3 through 9. 3 through 9. First, we're going to look at this in three sections. First, we're going to see a lavish act. The lavish act. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came up with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. In the middle of this story of rejection, and the rest of this book is going to be a lot of darkness, we see this woman shining forth as an example. We're told Jesus is at Bethany. Bethany is up on the, over the Mount of Olives right next to Jerusalem. It's where Lazarus lived. Actually, in John, we're told that Lazarus was there at this dinner. And recently, not very long before this happened, 
Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. So Jesus has done great miracles in this place, and we're told he's in the house of a man named Simon the leper. Some people think he was no longer a leper because otherwise he wouldn't have been having people over, and maybe he was one of the lepers who was healed by Jesus. But whatever the case may be, we're, we're told that Jesus is at this dinner party. He's reclining at table, and in the middle of dinner, a woman comes over with an alabaster flask. It's some kind of white flask. It probably would have had a long top that you would unplug. And inside is pure nard. And if you really are interested, you can read about what that is. There's like different theories. It's something from the Himalayas, some special nut. Or some people think it's pistachio that's smashed up and made into some kind of fragrance. Um, but the, the point is that it's a very costly ointment. This is a perfume that's extremely expensive. We're told later in a few verses that it's worth over 300 denarii. Denarii is a day's wage. 300 days' wages. In another book, in John, we're told that it's more than a year's worth of wages. Think about how much you make in a year. You don't have to say it out loud, but think about how much you make in a year and imagine buying perfume with that. And in this in this time this might have been some kind of heirloom that was passed down to your kids this is i mean this is like a rainy day fund this is maybe your retirement this is this is extremely costly that's that's a lot of money but we're told that this woman not only pours it over her head but she goes over breaks the flask and pours it over his head this is not this is not normal. She doesn't unplug it or she doesn't squirt the perfume. She breaks the bottle and pours it all over the head of Jesus. He's just sitting there having dinner and all of a sudden a woman comes in, smashes the glass and starts pouring perfume all over his head. And we're told in the other gospels that not only is it on his head, but it's on his feet. Because there's so much perfume. This is so much fragrance that it flows all the way down his head, all the way down his body onto his feet. And she starts to rub his feet, we're told in, in Matthew and John, with her hair. Just like earlier in the ministry of Jesus, in Luke chapter 7, just like that famous sinful woman did. Obviously, this is a, a, a lavish act of love. Obviously, she appreciates Jesus. Obviously, she thinks that he's important enough to spend all maybe of her life savings or at least her rainy day fund and pour it all over the Lord Jesus. But how do the people around respond? What do they do? Well, in verse 4, we see a harsh response. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. It's not celebrated. It's not honored. It's not valued. Instead, the people who are there are saying to themselves indignantly, the word is used a few chapters earlier when the disciples are arguing over who gets the best spot. They're mad at each other because they want to sit next to Jesus in heaven. They're indignant. They're angry. They're mad. 
And what do they think about this ointment? It's been wasted. What a waste. What a waste of this money. We're told actually, and specifically Judas in John, who says and starts this and says, shouldn't this have been sold and given to the poor, planning in his mind that he could actually take the money. He was lining his purse with the money that was given to Jesus for his ministry. But Matthew tells us it's not just the people who were there and it's not just Judas. It's all the disciples, all the disciples that are there, all saying this is a waste. What a waste to pour this ointment on Jesus. Should have been sold and given to the poor. And then they start scolding her, going after her. You wasted that. You shouldn't have done that. What were you thinking? And what we see here is, just like the chief priests, we see an example of unbelief, right? They don't understand. They don't get it. The disciples, even the disciples who have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and preach, to cast out demons, to heal, to do amazing things, they still don't get it. They still have that same spirit of Peter that wants to get in the way of Jesus going to the cross. But even more specifically, they don't get that this is something that is honoring to the Lord Jesus. They don't get that Jesus is the one who's not going to just bring about a new kingdom that they can rule and reign in. That's not just the instrument of their, their success, but that he is the goal. They are still serving Jesus for what that they can get from him, whether it be freedom from the Romans or for Judas, whether he can line his purse. But their unbelief causes them to miss the entire point. They think it's a waste. And he starts scolding her. But we see the gracious interpretation of what she's done. We're told what's happened, but now Jesus is going to tell us what this whole story means in verses 6 through 9. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. I love this, this first picture that Jesus immediately defends her. They're scolding her. Why did you do that? That was such a dumb move. You're selling your life savings. That could have been given to the poor if you really wanted to do something with it. And immediately what does Jesus do? Leave her alone. Rushes to her defense. Why do you trouble her? Leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing to me. Mary understands Jesus is not just the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises in the sense that he's going to bring about a political and earthly kingdom. Mary understands actually the entire course of history is designed by God to bring about the person of Jesus. The reason that this world was created, the reason that every single thing has happened on this planet is, to, is for the summing up of all things in Christ, Paul tells us. Everything was created for the sake of honoring the Lord Jesus. 
Even the fall was allowed, not caused, but allowed by God to give more honor and praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. And she's done a beautiful thing to him. She understands he is the focus of all God's plans on earth. He is the culmination of all of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. The Messiah means anointed one. He's the prophet, greater than all the other prophets, greater than Moses. He speaks a better word to us than Moses did, a word of no condemnation. He's the priest. He intercedes for us. And he doesn't sacrifice bulls and goats that could never take away sins. He sacrifices his own body as the priest and yet the Lamb of God. And he's the king, the greater king. All of those things are wrapped up in the idea of the Messiah. And so nothing that's done for him is too extravagant. Nothing could be wasted on Jesus if it's done for his honor and glory. And she's done this beautiful thing to him. But he also wants to address their excuse that this should have been given to the poor. And he says here that the poor you will always have with you. And many other passages of scripture, the Lord exhorts us to give to the poor, to take care of the poor. And if you look at the history of the world, charity in a lot of senses is a Christian idea, a Christian invention. If you, if you look at, at the history of hospitals and orphanages, almost all of them were started by people wanting to live like Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not saying that we don't give to the poor. But what he's commending here is not just this lavish act of love. Yes, we can imitate that. But he's commending something very specific. He says, you can do good for them whenever you want. But you will not always have me. We have Jesus Christ. Yes, spiritually speaking, we are connected to him. But Jesus in his humanity right now has a body that is located in heaven. In his deity, he is everywhere. He is present with us. But in his humanity, he is located in a specific place. And so this is a special time in the incarnation where he is actually on earth walking around. And so there, this, this expression of devotion and love and faith is appropriate because Jesus is only here for a short amount of time. Not because he's going to be transported to heaven like some kind of Star Trek, you know, beam me up, Scotty. But because he's going to leave this earth dying on a cross, rising again from the dead and ascending into heaven. And she knows that. I, I believe when, she, when it says here in verse 8, she has done what she could, all that she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. We are told in John, this is Mary, the brother of Lazarus, or sorry, the sister of Lazarus. She had just heard the sayings of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. Remember the famous story that we always we talk about, Martha, Martha. Why are you busy? You know, Mary has chosen what? The better part. She sat and listened to Jesus. Mary might have been one of the best listeners that Jesus ever had. Multiple times in the Gospels, we're told that Mary sits and listens at the feet of Jesus. When other people are busy, maybe thinking of how to provide for the poor or, you know, wash the dishes and get dinner ready, Jesus, or Mary understands, 
I need to sit and be with Jesus. She understands the urgency that he's only here for a certain amount of time. And surely she heard as over and over and over in the ministry of Jesus, he said what? I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be mocked, beaten. I'm going to go to the cross. But I'm doing it for a specific reason. Because I didn't come to be served. Although I am God, I am the ultimate king, I didn't come to be served. I didn't come so that you could bring tributes to me. Instead, I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is the reason why I've come. And all the other things, all the healing, all the casting out demons, all of these precious signs that we see in the scriptures are ultimately just verifying who Jesus is so he can do this one work. Go to the cross. And Mary understands that. So although this, I think, is a lavish act of love, that she, she, she runs out, smashes the, the neck of this perfume bottle, pours it all over Jesus, and in, in John we're told, or it's John or Matthew, it says the fragrance fills the entire house. She's deliberate. She knows Jesus is going to die. I might not have a chance to anoint his body for burial. She is probably one of the only people in the gospel that actually gets it. Jesus, yes, he's the Messiah, but he's the Messiah who reigns and rules through the work that he's done dying on the cross for our sins. That he's here to deal with our spiritual need primarily, not our physical needs, although he provides for those as well. So we see this gracious interpretation, this commendation that she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is so far from being worthy of a scolding. This is so far from being worthy of indignation. In fact, this is one of the greatest acts of faith and devotion to Christ that we have. So much so that Jesus says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This woman and her devotion to Jesus, we're still talking about it today. 2,000 years later in Santa Cruz, California. And what we see here is that when we really truly see who Jesus is, when we understand the book of Mark, and in fact, the, the entire Bible, it expresses itself in our lives in faith and devotion. Faith and devotion, they're different. Faith is what justifies us. Faith is what saves us. We're saved by faith alone, by trusting in what God has done in Christ Calvin described faith as knowing that God loves you based on the free promises of God. Knowing, not hoping, not crossing your fingers, but based on the promises of God that anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. We say, I know God loves me because I believe that I've come. So she, she has faith in Jesus. We see that because she's anointing him for burial. She's listened that he's going to go to the cross. But then we see her devotion. 
that faith, like Paul says in Galatians, it works through love. That although love is the law, we're not justified by our, our love for God. Because then we could never be sure of our salvation. We're justified by faith, by resting in the promises of God. That faith becomes a busy thing that leads to devotion to Christ in our lives. And specifically here, I've been encouraged in my own life that we can be so caught up in doing things for the Lord, in doing things for the poor, and even being involved in and and at church, which we should be and we are commanded to do. But what we see an example of here and what I believe Mark has put this passage in this book to show us is that our primary aim in life is to be trusting in and devoted to the Lord Jesus. That's what really matters. That we are to be devoted to the person of Christ. That when we focus on Him, specifically, not just Christ as a category for spiritual truths, but specifically when we focus on knowing the person of Jesus Christ as a real person, communing with him, spending time with him in his word, faithfully attending and listening to the preaching of the scriptures and gathering together with the body. That when we know him, the ultimate goal, Paul says, I, 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 I want to do one thing. I count everything as lost for the sake of what? Knowing Christ. And when we give our life to Christ, knowing him, the crucified Savior, the fragrance fills the entire room. The other aspects of our life of service and devotion and helping the poor, they get the flavor of grace that God has given us in Christ. And so although our lives are to be about other people, and even as we give to the poor, we give to Jesus. As we serve the poor in Christ, we serve Christ. Right? The Lord Jesus teaches us that. We must never forget that our primary aim as Christians is to know the person of Christ. To see him in the scriptures in all his glory. As the prophet, priest, and king. As the one who went to the cross to die for our sins and rose again. Because in fact, I think I mentioned this last, last time I preached. That's how we're transformed. Yes, we're transformed through discipline. Yes, we're transformed through all kinds of, of spiritual activities, but we are primarily transformed from one level of glory to the next as we behold the glory of Christ. But this is not how everyone responds. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. There's a sense in which Judas finally gets it too. He'd seen Jesus do all kinds of things. He'd seen Jesus cast out demons, heal people, walk on water. He'd heard him talk about how he's going to come again, how he's going to rebuild, he's going to be raised again as the temple. Mark 13, Jesus talks about his coming as the son of man. Judas had heard these stories about, about Jesus, and we don't know 
why exactly he betrayed Jesus. But in the other gospel accounts as well, these stories are next to each other. That this was the final straw. This was the impetus for Judas to leave and to betray Jesus. Because he sees, probably my time for getting money from Jesus has come. It seems to be the end of his life. But maybe with the other disciples, he might be promising to do these great things, but he's going to accomplish that through suffering. And so he responds, instead of with faith and devotion, Judas responds with unbelief and betrayal. And that's really, I think, how the world responds to the message of Jesus, right? Either responds with faith and devotion for those of us who are believers, or responds with unbelief and rejection. And I think this is another reminder as well that our purpose as the church, first of all, this teaches us that we must trust in and be devoted to the person of Jesus. That's how we obey the book of Mark, believing and trusting in Christ and then being devoted to him. But we also see the importance of the gospel here. That yes, it's, it's, it's good to care for the poor. Yes, it's good to minister to people. Yes, it's good to be involved in, in social settings, but Unbelief is, is even okay with that. The world is okay with that. As long as your religion does something practical and meaningful for other people, they're okay with it, right? As long as you're giving to the poor, as long as you're starting orphanages, then, you know what, okay, then your Christianity is okay. But when we are devoted to and obsessed with the person of Jesus Christ, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? It's foolishness to the world. It's foolishness to Judas, it's foolishness to the disciples, it's foolishness to the chief priests. But God has promised to accomplish his purposes on earth through the clear preaching of the gospel. That the most important thing is our, that an issue that needs to be dealt with is our sin. That we stand before God accountable for everything that we've done. That God demands loyalty from us as his creatures, and yet we failed. We've been unfaithful. But God has sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. He's taken our place. That just as we deserve an eternity in hell, God has poured out all of that judgment on Jesus Christ. He's taken that in his body on the tree, and he's canceled the certificate of debt that stood against us, having nailed it to the cross. He's cried out, it is finished. And he rose from the dead to prove that all that he said and did was true. And that is the message that we must be devoted to. That is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians is the message of first importance. That is the one thing that we as a church must give our lives to is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Making it known. Because that is what God promises to bless. And in the meantime, we serve. We have kindness explosions. But all for the purpose, ultimately, of telling others about our crucified Savior, who's risen from the dead, who's worthy of an entire life of devotion. So let us all seek to follow the example of this woman, someone who gets it, 
that life is about trusting in Jesus Christ, believing in him, not trusting in our own righteousness, not trusting in our own performance, our own ability to approach God, but putting all our confidence in what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. And then let us be devoted to him. Let us spend time with him. This woman has a lot to teach us. Let's close in prayer.